Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. We learn so much about ourselves when we take a look back and look at history. I mean, and that goes for all of us, regardless of who you are or where you've come from. The lessons in Black history are lessons for everybody. I mean, they are lessons about overcoming. They are lessons about building and creating and contributing at a time when, you know, folks didn't even consider you human. However dark and depressed and anxious a lot of us uh, may be today, and not just Black people, everybody, I think that looking back at how African-Americans overcame and triumphed in the midst of obstacles and adversity that none of us today can appreciate is really instructive. It's really motivating. It's something that lifts me up and I hope it does the same for you too. So in furtherance of that, uh, my next guest is the founder of blackpast.org. He is contributing to our knowledge of American history and African-American history in ways that, uh, for which we should really all be grateful. I am very grateful. I hope you are too. Here I am with Dr. Keentard Taylor, the founder of blackpast.org. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Taylor, founder of blackpast.org. Tell us why you started this website. Well, first of all, thank you for having me and inviting me to, to join your audience. Well, the website story, we have a kind of an origin story. The website story goes back to roughly 2004. Uh, I was teaching then at the University of Washington. I was teaching African-American history, which is my specialty. And I had a TA. Uh, his name was George Tamlin. And George suggested that we put vignettes, what he called vignettes, on our faculty website because he said I was spending far too much time talking about the background of people like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and Fannie Lou Hamer. And if we had that background information on the faculty website, students could go and get it there, and then we could focus on what they actually did, what these individuals did. And I was resistant to this. I, I'm, I was a conservative <laughs> history professor who really didn't believe in online uh, you know, information at that moment. And I don't even think I allowed my students to use online sources for their research papers. That shows how, how far back that I was in, in terms of how conservative I was in terms of uh, the new technology that was emerging. But he persuaded me. And as a result, with his help, in fact, he wrote about 50 vignettes. We'll call them vignettes. These were essentially short pieces on individuals like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and Fannie Lou Hamer and others that he posted on our faculty website. Every faculty member has a website. And for about a year, I sort of forgot about them. I didn't think very much about them. I continued to teach. I referenced them every once in a while to the students. And then I got a call. I actually, I'm sorry, I got an email from a young lady. And you could sort of tell from the email, she sounded like she might have been a high schooler rather than a college student. And she said, I have these 10 questions about African-American history that I'd like for you to answer. And I said to her, well, I'm not going to answer 10 questions over the Internet. Why don't you come in during my office hour and we can discuss them? And I didn't hear from her for about 24 hours. And then she wrote back and she said, I can't come in during your office hours because I live 
in New Zealand. <laughs> and it was at that point that I realized this website is actually going around the world. You know, I I had heard all the stuff about the World Wide Web, and I guess I just didn't take it seriously. And we had forgotten to gate the website. We had forgotten to limit it only to University of Washington students. And so the information was just going out everywhere. And so that was the first indication that something was going on that was beyond uh, the scope of our classes. And then probably two to three months later, I got the strangest email from someone who purported to be from the U.S. State Department. And he said, uh, people in Russia, in Siberia, in fact, have heard about your website and they would like you to come to Russia to talk about African-American history. And then he said, or the email said, please send your social security number and your bank account. And I'm thinking, this is some kind of scam. <laughs> you know, who asks for social security information and a bank account that they expect you, know, you to send online? And so I thought about it for a while. And then I said, what if it's not a scam? What if this guy really is from the U.S. State Department? And so I talked to a friend who knew a friend in the FBI and the friend in the FBI checked him out. And in fact, this person did work for the U.S. State Department. And at that point, I responded. And to make a long story short, within two months of that initial email, I was headed to not just Russia, but Siberia. I, I was literally going to places that most Russians had never been, uh, places like Omsk, which, and if you know anything about the geography of Russia, Omsk is due north of New Delhi, India. That's how far east it is in, in Russia. And uh, I went to Ekaterinburg, and we went to uh, a number of other cities in Siberia. And I was immediately struck by a couple of things. Number one, that in these remote places, there were people who had access the website. They, they knew something about our faculty website. But number two, there was this Russian fascination with American culture and particularly African-American culture that a lot of Russians, and you know, you sort of expected in the old Soviet Union when there was propaganda that said, we are supportive of the American Revolution, the, the African-American Revolution. But what was going on at this point, because this was Russia post-Soviet era, what was going on at this point was that there were a whole host of people in Russia who were identifying with the African-American struggle. And I was just so impressed and amazed by that. And so as we began to travel around, I read into more and more people, students and faculty, who said, you know, we love this website resource, uh, do more of it. And, um, you know, I, I'll tell you, just for your audience, there was one joke. I, I said to someone that I, I am from Seattle, Washington, in the Pacific Northwest, and at one time, Russia had claimed that area of North America, and one of the students answered, yes, and we want it back. <laughs> you know, I said, this is, this is just amazing that there's this kind of knowledge about African-American culture and reverence for African-American culture in, of all places, Siberia. And so when I got back to the U.S., this was 2005, when I got back to the U.S., I decided maybe it's time for us to create a dedicated website, a website that does nothing more than African-American history online. And we actually got some technical people involved. And about a year later, a little bit over a year later, on February 1st, 
2007, we launched the website at the University of Washington campus. Now, it wasn't sponsored by the University of Washington, but because I was teaching there, that's where we launched it. And we we thought, okay, we'll get a modest response. We got so many responses that the day that we launched that it crashed the website. And so so we had to go back and start over and plan. And to make again, to make a long story short, the website just grew from then. Uh, the first year we had 100,000 uh, visitors. The next year we had half a million. And after about three years, we had over a million visitors. And, and Tanya, this year, we are going to get, for the first time, one million visitors during Black History Month, February of Black History Month. Uh, we've had over 800,000 visitors since February 1st this year. So, so things are going gangbusters for, for the website. And it's a testament to the fact that there, there are literally millions of people, not thousands of people, but millions of people around the world who are hungry for African-American history. I had an interview with Lonnie Bunch, the secretary of the uh, Smithsonian yesterday. I was interviewing him. I was in your, your role uh, yesterday. And we both remarked that, you know, you go around the world and there are people who are enamored of the black struggle and African-Americans. And I don't think we, and especially I don't think African-Americans appreciate the fact that how much we're appreciated and our struggle is appreciated around the world. And so Black Pass speaks to that. I mean, we probably 80 percent of our audience is in the U.S., which is to be expected. But another 20 percent of our audience comes from around the world. We get at this moment, and I'm not, this is not hyperbole. At this moment, we have people who are visiting the website from St. Petersburg, Florida, but also from St. Petersburg, Russia. That's how powerful uh, the site is. Hello, Russians and Siberians. I'm saying hello yes. to all of the Russians <laughs> yes, and the Siberians. Uh, fans <laughs> of blackpass.org. <laughs> Uh, don't lose faith, everybody. We're all hoping we can avoid a war. And check out blackpass.org. Blackpass.org not only has entries on African-Americans, but we have entries on people of African ancestry all around the world. In fact, we have entries that are related to every country in the world, including Ukraine and including Russia. We probably have 100 entries that are related just to Russia. Black people in Russia? Yes, black people in Russia. I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, and this is, I, I think it's still mind blowing to me even to this day. The first black Russian general, I always say black Russian <laughs> and I think about the drink, you know, but the first, the first black Russian general was Abraham Petrovich, who was appointed a general in the Russian Imperial Army in 1743. Now that's before the U.S. existed as Where a nation. Where did he come from? I mean, that, so what was his story? What was his story? <laughs> How does he end up a Russian general in the 18th century? Well, it's a, it's an interesting story, and of course, you can you can you can find all of the information on BlackPass.org. But essentially, what had happened was that he was captured as a little boy, as a slave. He was brought from uh, what is now Dahomey in in Africa. And he ended up in Turkey and then finally in the court of uh, one of the Russian czars. And so he grew up in a, in a life of privilege. And, of course, being in a life of privilege, he was going to be at the top of society. And he was, 
He went to a French military academy and eventually he came back to Russia and he became a Russian general. And the interesting thing about it is that he's not unique. We are we're working on a second Russian general, his son, who also rose in the ranks to be prominent in the Russian army. So so when we talk about Russia, for example, most people think, well, there are black folks who went over during the Soviet era. And certainly there were a number of those. There's no question. You could do an entire show on the black folks who went to the Soviet Union, like Langston Hughes in the 1930s. But there were black people in Russia going back, well, hundreds of years, uh, mostly from Africa. But there were also African-Americans who were in Russia as early as the 1820s. So there's this long and deep connection with Russia. And, and Russia is just one country. As I said, we have connections to every country in the world. We have, we have entries on people of African ancestry in the history of the Ukraine. You know, Dr. Taylor, I, I, I'm not surprised uh, by this interest that people around the world have in African-Americans and African-American culture and history because there's such a truncated view of it. I mean, most people... Uh, I mean, I don't want to overgeneralize. Let me just put it like this. I think that there are a lot of people mm -hmm. who, when you ask them about their understanding of African-American history, it goes something like, we were, you know, they were enslaved. There was a civil rights movement. Martin Luther King showed up. And then Barack Obama was born. The end. You know what I mean? And <laughs> so they don't, there is such a lack of resource about all of these other parts of not just the struggle, but the triumph. And I, mm -hmm. I think that that's really uh, something that uh, to be celebrated about your work and about blackpast.org because you're, I, it, it, I, won't, I can't even just say you're filling in the gaps. There's one really, really, really mm -hmm. big gap and you are, you know, with these mm -hmm. vignettes, as you describe them, kind of giving us more information than we otherwise would have had. Well, well, thank you. Thank you. So a million visitors in February of 2022. What do you want this site to accomplish in terms of telling the stories uh, of Black people? In a way, you've already explained it. We want this site to make Black people and the world, not just Black people, but everybody in the world, understand that African-American history and the history of Black people is not simply the history of slavery or simply the history of the migration to the North or simply the history of the civil rights movement. I mean, those are important elements. There's no question about that. Those are the elements that kind of form the basis for popular culture, uh, the popular culture understanding of African-American history. But it goes much, much deeper than that. I, uh, you, had a, uh, you had one of our contributors uh, Trisha Martineau uh, on just a few weeks ago, I think, or maybe a few days ago. And she talked about Biddy Mason. And I, I heard some of that in that interview. Biddy Mason is fascinating. Uh, she's still fascinating to me all of this time later. Her, her name is Bridget, officially Bridget Mason. And of course, there's a monument to her that's literally across the street from the Ronald Reagan Federal Courthouse in downtown Los Angeles. You're, you're from LA, so you, you probably know about that monument. But what a lot of people don't know is that the founders, the 40-some founders of Los Angeles, officially in 1781, most of those people look like you and me. Most of those people were of African ancestry. For instance, the first Black person that we know about 
who actually traversed what is now the American West, that is Texas West to Arizona, New Mexico, was a Moroccan, uh, a black Moroccan, born a slave, who eventually uh, uh, became an explorer for the Spanish and reached what is now Arizona and New Mexico. In other words, he is the first non-Indian to see Arizona and New Mexico. And this was in 17, excuse me, in 1539. So, so there's this, all of this history out there that people are not aware of. I'll give you another example. I was just jumping through the, all of these examples. We think about the, the struggle for Black women to get the right to vote. And most people focus on focus their attention, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but they focus their attention on the struggles in the East, in New York, uh, in Boston, in Philadelphia, and the Black women who organized to bring about the right to vote and how that came about with the 19th Amendment. Well, in truth, the first Black women to vote in the United States in the post-Civil War era, because there were actually some Black women who voted in the colonial period and just after the, the American Revolution. But the first to vote after the Civil War were a handful of African-American women in Cheyenne, Wyoming territory. Who would imagine that? Black women, first of all, that there are <laughs> black women in Wyoming territory. And secondly, that they go to the polls in 1870 before the vast majority of black people, men or women, vote anywhere in the U.S. That's the kind of history that we are digging out. And when I say we, I, I, I think I would be remiss to, to not share with your audience how Black Pass works. I don't write these entries. Almost all of the entries are written by voluntary contributors, people who volunteer and who say, we know one aspect of African-American history, and that's what we want to write on. And so they do so. And as a result, as of today, we have over 950 voluntary contributors, people who write for Black Pass from six continents. In other words, people all around the world are engaged in this process of writing this history. And they write it about African America, but they also write it about their own countries. For instance, there we have a person, I don't say our person in Moscow, but we have a person in Moscow, Russia, who writes entries on Black Russians. And one of the entries that he wrote that still fascinates me is the influence of African-American music on Russian culture. And he starts that story in the 1830s. <laughs> okay. So, so there's this rich history that we don't know. And, and when I say we, I include myself in that. I was trained in African-American history. I have a PhD in African-American history. And I taught African-American history for nearly... Well, I, this shows how old I am for nearly 50 years, okay? Uh, but I can tell you that I learned more Black history working with the people who were writing for Black Past than I ever learned in grad school or I ever learned while teaching African-American history over all those years and all those institutions. So, so, and what I suggest here is that there's this rich vein of African-American history and Black world history that even as we sit here today... You know, here in February of 2022, we don't know. And that's what Black Pass is, is bound and determined to do, to dig out, to flesh out that, that history that we still don't know. I don't, yeah, I don't have an issue with talking about Martin Luther King or Malcolm X or any of these other folks, but because they are quintessentially important to our lives and our history, 
But we also want to know about those black women in Cheyenne, Wyoming, who voted in 1870. We also want to know about those black folks in Russia. We also want to know about the South Africans who were involved in the struggle against apartheid. And we want to know about the Africans who created these empires like Mali, Ghana, and Songhai long before the U.S. ever existed. So that's, that's our task. That's our mission, to try to bring all that history to light. This is more critical than ever now because of the attack on critical race theory, the attack on African-American history in general. There's a conscious effort to erase Black history from the classroom as we speak. And you can do a show on that. You should do a show on that in the future. But, but I will tell you, Black past is here. I mean, we didn't intend for it to be this, but Black past is here as a bulwark against that to make sure that even if, even if state legislatures in Texas and Alabama and Mississippi pass laws that make it difficult to teach African-American history, that Black kids and Black adults in those states will know where they can go to get the truth. You can outlaw the teaching of Black history in the schools in Texas, but you can't outlaw Black past in Texas. I'm so glad you went there because I was going to ask you about that, uh, Dr. Taylor, uh, some of the attacks on critical race theory and what I think is a real mischaracterization of some of the tenets of critical race theory. First off, I've never heard of critical race theory being taught in elementary or middle schools or these other schools. I took a <laughs> seminar on critical race theory in law school. As I understand it, and not the way I think it's been defined by some of its detractors, it's really a set of precepts for understanding American history in a broader sense. and these, it's been interpreted, so I think, as to make people afraid uh, of telling certain Black stories. Yeah, there is a purposeful effort. This is not just a misinterpretation of critical race theory. There are people, and we don't want to, I don't want to turn this into a show on critical race theory, but there is a conscious, concerted effort to use critical race theory or to create this boogeyman called critical race theory in order to attack the broad swath of history of people of color that's emerged since the 1960s. This is, not, this is not about critical race theory. This is about, in some ways, trying to erase from the American consciousness the last 50 years of American history. Because, and isn't it also a continuation of, you know, the same tendencies that are the reason we don't know about a lot of these people in the first place. I mean, I think that there has been an effort Absolutely. to minimize, marginalize, um, and silence the stories of Black people. But, you know, here's what my folks always say. Uh, when somebody is doing something that you don't like, what you have to do is do more of what you do like. And that's what blackpast.org is. Because uh, as you said, they might be no, able to you. outlaw some books in the classroom. They will not be able to outlaw you. What's so interesting and fascinating and wonderful about your work and the work of blackpast.org is that it tells stories of triumph. I mean, because, you know, it, it's so ironic, Dr. Taylor, these folks who are criticizing people for telling comprehensive stories of black people are really missing the point. Mm -hmm. I mean, Biddy Mason, if you right. can be born enslaved and then end up one of Los Angeles's largest landowners, that is a lesson of inspiration for everybody. I mean, don't you think that by 
minimizing and marginalizing these stories. We are depriving all Americans of hope and inspiration and of a way out. It's not just for black people. Biddy Mason doesn't just motivate black people. She's a motivator to anybody right, right. who's trying to, you know, who's got right. a struggle. Don't you see that these attacks are really missing the point? I mean, they are depriving all of America of, of, of necessary and needed heroes. I agree with you to a point. I, I think these attacks are depriving all of Americans of inspirational stories, but I actually would believe that that's the point. Uh, if you look back at American history, what you see, what comes out very clearly is the attack on Black education, the attack on educated Blacks, the attack on Black progress. I mean, because if you think about it, you can, you know, you can enslave a person but you can't enslave knowledge. And that knowledge ultimately will make that person free. If you look at the history of slavery in America, you know, one of the first things that was done to, um, to perpetuate slavery was to cancel black education. Black people were not allowed to read and write. If you look at Reconstruction, one of the first acts of terror wasn't simply the attempt to keep blacks from voting, but the attempt to destroy black schools. Black, black schools were targeted by the Klan. Why is that? The Klan understood the power of education. And so if you stop education, if you can keep people from understanding who they are and, and, and their struggle, and as you say, their successes, then you can keep them enslaved. You know, Not physically enslaved, certainly mentally enslaved. And so many of the tropes about African-American, you know, laziness and our not valuing education were deliberately developed so as to counter the true stories right. of our education and our success. You know, as you point out, the racial terrorism that arose in response to Reconstruction, the people who were being terrorized were the ones trying to vote, were the black legislatures, were the mm -hmm. lawyer, uh, legislators, lawyers. Uh, black success is not something that America has often celebrated, uh, to put it very mildly. Um, and Black Past tells those stories. And I would just add that th those people who were terrorized were the lawyers uh, and the people who were making the laws in Reconstruction. But the people who were most frequently terrorized were the teachers, white and Black, were dedicated to trying to educate an entire race. I think there's always been this struggle over education. And there's been this pushback on the, on the part of the larger society, white society in general, to make sure the black people weren't educated. And, you know, Carter G. Woodson said it best. If you can teach black people to feel inferior, they will not only go through the back door, they will ask for a back door even when one doesn't exist. So the miseducation of the Negro, to appropriate his title, is something that's been going on for a long time. And we have shades of that now in the critique over uh, critical race theory, but we also have you, and we also have broadcasters, and we have people who are pushing back against that. So that the reconstruction process, people say we're going through a second or a third reconstruction. I don't, I'm not gonna argue that we're not, but I am gonna argue that doesn't necessarily mean that the third reconstruction will fail because we've got a whole host of talented people out there and we've got a whole host of stories that should inspire us. And if we just listen and learn, we will prevail. I am hopeful that with the continued and growing success of uh, sites like blackpast.org, uh, once again, folks, that's blackpast.org. 
uh, incredible website. I'm hopeful that with the success of this site, that these stories will be more um, integrated into the historical canon of America. Are you hopeful that there's a way or that there will come a time when more of these stories are integrated into the American historical canon? I think they're already being integrated. I think, you know, I, uh, first of all, I've taught for 50 years and I taught African-American history, but I've also taught American history. And when I say American history, I don't mean African-American history is American history. Obviously, that's the point. But I've also taught U.S. history survey courses and we've ensured, we've made sure that that history was integrated. And my colleagues, uh, I, I have to say a good word about uh, all of my colleagues that I work with at the University of Oregon, at the University of Washington, at Cal Poly. I used to teach at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, so I know about California's educational system. I, I will tell you just a small thing, but I'm proud of it. A few years ago, maybe 10 years ago, the state of California ordered new textbooks, and one of the, the ideas that they incorporated in this textbook uh, was the, the history of Blacks in California, and a lot of those technical information that they gathered for that history came from my own work. So, so yeah, we are making a difference. I, when I say we, I'm not just me, but I think there are thousands of historians who are making a difference. I'll give you just one example. You know, when I started in this field, this field is African-American history. When I started in this field, there were probably no more than 25 or 30 historians who focused in this area. There are now five to 6,000, five to 6,000. And those numbers grow with every year. And or to, or to give you another statistic that's, I think, in some ways even more inspiring, I graduated. Now, I'm going to tell your audience exactly how old I am by doing this. But I graduated from college in 1969. And when I graduated from college in 1969, there were only about 300,000 Black college graduates in the entire country out of 25 million Black people. I mean, think about that statistic for a minute. 300,000 out of 25 million. Today, the numbers are not as good as they should be, but today, out of 40 million, there we, we approach 6 to uh, 7 million. So our numbers have improved dramatically, even in the 50 years or so that I've been an adult and I've been teaching. So, yeah, I am very hopeful. I will tell you that... You wouldn't have existed. I, I, how will I say this? You and people like you wouldn't have existed 150 years ago or maybe even 50 years ago. So that's why I'm hopeful. That's, I, I can see change. I can see change in my lifetime. You know, my daughter, who's a lawyer, she's actually a member of the state legislature in Washington. We often have these discussions. I won't call them arguments, but discussions. She's a little bit more pessimistic than I am. But I say the very fact that you're in the legislature is in many ways a, an example of that change. In Washington state, uh, this is an amazing statistic. There's a greater number of blacks in the legislature than reflected in the general population of blacks in Washington. Now think about that statistic. More blacks in proportion in the legislature than there are blacks in the state of Washington. I guess if you're black and you show up in Washington, you just have to go to the legislature. There's, I guess that's the job. <laughs> I guess that's well, it's, it's almost um, like that. I, I, 
I will say this before we go, Dr. Taylor, you know, you talked about how things are changing. I think they're not only changing, I think they're going to continue to change. And I think that part of that is because of you. When I was younger, I had parents who were very engaged and, and involved. So, you know, they made a point of making sure I read and, and knew a bit about my history. But there was just not the representation that we have now. There was just not the awareness. I was not a young black woman growing up in LA being aware of uh, uh, Biddy Mason who was born enslaved and then ended up owning a lot of the city. And I think that if she were a part of my consciousness right. when I was a young kid, I might've like, you know, I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm doing just fine now. Um, I, 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 feel, I feel pretty good. <laughs> but I wonder how I might've seen the world differently you know, as a young girl, if I'd been more aware of, you know, that story. And so what you're doing is you are broadening the horizons for so many young African-American people who now are going to, because of blackpast.org, are going to be more aware of who they are and where they've come from. They are going to see in themselves their true history, not these made up tropes and this you know, parse through stuff that we see on the news and that people throw out for political purposes, they are going to really see and learn and understand mm -hmm. who they are and where they came from. Uh, and we have you to thank for that. I have you mm -hmm. to thank for that. I, I feel better about well, history well, when I go on your site, blackpast.org. Mm -hmm. It makes me feel better about the future. Um, and it reminds me that no matter how dismal things may seem uh, at any present moment, the people before me found a way out, and so I know I will too. And that goes uh, even more so for the generations after us. So you, Dr. Taylor, have really done the world Absolutely. a service. You've done the world a service, you've done Americans a service, uh, and you've done Black people in America a service. And so as one of those folks, I, I thank you. I thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Use Black Pass. That's all I can say. Continue to use Black Pass. I. I'm not going to be around forever, but we hope the Black Past will be around forever. Blackpast.org. Uh, it will be around forever because we're all going to make sure it's around forever, no matter where you are, whether or not you're in Siberia or Virginia. Regardless <laughs> of wherever you are, blackpast.org is a resource for you. Um, it's a resource for all of us, for every single one of us. Go to blackpast.org, learn more history. It's going to teach us a lot more about how we can get out of some of the messes that we're now in. Uh, Dr. Quintard Taylor, founder of blackpast.org. Thank you so much, sir, for your work and for joining us here today. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me.